1: Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses, in the story of the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the god of jacob so he is the god of the living not the dead you have made a serious error
0: the gospel of mark chapter 12 verses 18 26 and 27 new living translation hello i'm victoria k welcome to another episode of anchored by truth today we are continuing our look at the intertestamental period the period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., today we're going into our fifth episode in the series. Last time, we talked a bit about the conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids for the control of Palestine during the intertestamental period. So, to set the stage for today's discussion, how about giving us a bit of a review of what we've been discussing up to now?
2: Well, hello to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. We want to let you know that we really appreciate you taking some time to be with us on Anchored by Truth, and especially today, we just want to tell you how grateful we are for all the people who listen to this program. The intertestamental period is probably the period of biblical history that receives the least attention when people think about the Bible. It's certainly got to be one of the periods within biblical history that receives the least attention. You know, most people are very familiar with the accounts of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And probably most people are pretty familiar with some of the most popular episodes from the Old Testament, like Noah and the Ark, or Daniel in the lion's den, or Elijah battling the prophets on Mount Carmel. But even people who are regular Bible readers and listeners often don't pay a lot of attention to the hundreds of years that elapsed between the books of Malachi and Matthew. But we really need to pay some attention to that period because there were a great number of events that occurred during the intertestamental period that are very important for us to have a well developed understanding of both the Old and the New Testaments. And those events of the intertestamental period that are important to biblical history includes the protracted conflict that occurred between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and this conflict occurred between the years of around 300 B.C. and 160 B.C. And, of course, last time on Anchored by Truth, our last episode, we spent a good bit of time talking about that conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids.
0: And as a refresher, Ptolemy and Seleucus had both been generals in Alexander the Great's army. After Alexander's death, his empire was carved into four territories. Ptolemy became the king of the Egyptian portion, and Seleucus became the king of the Syrian portion. Israel obviously was between these two. So when conflicts occurred between the two dynasties, which was pretty much all the time, Israel was always caught in the conflict. One of the most important prophetic chapters in the Old Testament has got to be chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. The entire chapter is devoted to the conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. It's so detailed that it could almost read like a historical report of the conflict. But it was written over 200 years before the first events of the struggle.
2: Right. And that's, again, a very good reason for looking at the intertestamental period. In the intertestamental period, we see a fulfillment of a large number of prophecies that were made and that are contained in the Old Testament such as the prophecies that are contained in Daniel chapter 11. And when we look at the intertestamental period, especially when it comes to the conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, we see that those prophecies in Daniel chapter 11 are fulfilled in such fine granularity that that shouldn't do anything but enhance our confidence in the Bible, in the Bible's trustworthiness, and in the Bible's supernatural origin, because, how in the world could a human being, unaided by God, make prophecies of detailed events that would occur 200 years in the future? Fulfilled prophecy is one of the strongest lines of evidence of the Bible's supernatural inspiration. But beyond just seeing the prophetic fulfillment that occurred during the intertestamental period, we also see during this period the foundation being laid for many of the events that we read about in the New Testament. For instance, There is no mention of the Sadducees or Pharisees at all in the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus in the first century A.D., both of those groups were very prominent in Israel.
0: And since our contemporary calendar is dated according to Jesus' life, this is the period during which Jesus lived and performed his earthly ministry. Jesus frequently encountered both the Sadducees and the Pharisees during his ministry, though unfortunately most references to them are not positive ones.
2: Well, unfortunately, they are not. But at any rate, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those groups arose sometime during the intertestamental period, although most scholars are not exactly sure when. But it can be very helpful to our understanding of Israel during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry to try to understand some of the forces that gave rise to those groups.
0: So what is some of the thinking behind what gave rise to these two groups and why they became so prominent?
2: Well, as we've already mentioned several times during this series, after Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided among four of his generals. Now, initially, Palestine came under the rule of Ptolemy, who was also ruling Egypt. Now, under Ptolemy, the Jews seemed to have retained a large measure of self-rule, and the Jews were able to continue to practice their own religion. The Jews were able, for instance, to have their own high priest. Now, traditionally, in the history of Israel, the high priest had just had a religious function. But when there was no king during the Ptolemaic period, the fact that there was no Jewish king, well, that made the high priest also become a major source of political influence. Now, under the Ptolemies, another thing that's important is that the Jews also flourished in Egypt And as we've noted earlier, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, was eventually produced by a Jewish colony in Alexandria. Now, the Ptolemies controlled Palestine from about 300 B.C. to about 198 B.C.
0: But in 198 B.C., the Seleucids were finally able to get control of Palestine. There had been frequent conflicts between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids But this was the first time that the Seleucids actually were able to directly rule Palestine. The Seleucid rulers normally went by the title of Antiochus. In 175 BC, Antiochus IV came to power. This turned out to be a very bad thing for the
2: Jews. Correct. Antiochus IV was also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, during the period that Antiochus Epiphanes was in control of Palestine, He began to feel pressure from the Romans because the Romans were already beginning an expansion from their location, obviously, in Italy to the east. The Romans actually conquered Macedonia, which is the northern part of the Greek peninsula, in 146 BC. But even before that, Rome's expanding territorial ambitions were becoming very obvious. So Antiochus the Epiphanes was feeling this pressure, so in an attempt to strengthen his control over Palestine and his empire, Antiochus stepped up the process of Hellenizing his empire.
0: Hellenization referred to the process of importing the Greek language and culture into the territories Alexander had conquered. It had always occurred at some pace within the territories the Greeks controlled, but not at the same rate everywhere. Evidently, Antiochus felt that if his empire were thoroughly Hellenized, the people would be more resistant to the Romans. So part of what Epiphanes did was to try to get the Jews to change their culture and give up their religion. This produced a terrible period of persecution for the Jews. Not unpredictably, it
2: spawned a revolt. Right. In 167 BC, Epiphanes set up a statue of Zeus in the temple and then he slaughtered pigs as a sacrifice to that statue that represented the god Zeus. Well, many of the Jews thought that this event was what the prophet Daniel had referred to when he spoke of the abomination of desolation. You know, it's really hard to imagine doing anything that would inflame faithful Jews more than desecrating their temple. Well, right after this desecration, the Maccabean Revolt broke out. This revolt was led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, hence the Maccabean Revolt, and Judas Maccabeus was also known as Judas the Hammer.
0: And the revolt was successful. In 164 BC, the Jews were able to regain control of Jerusalem and they cleansed the temple. This event is
2: still celebrated among the Jews as Hanukkah.
0: All this history was recorded and is part
2: of the book known as 1st Maccabees. And the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees are part of the group of books known as the Apocrypha, which we talked about in the first episode of this series on the intertestamental period. The Apocrypha are thought by Roman Catholics and by some of the Orthodox branches of the Christian faith to be part of a second canon, so they are sometimes referred to as deuterocanonical.
0: So after the Ptolemies lost control of Palestine, there was a lot going on during the next four decades. How did all this lead to formation of the Sadducees
2: and the Pharisees? Well, let's remember, let's focus on the fact that both the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were Greek. Now, they may have been fighting for control of Palestine and other territory, but they were both still part of the original Greek empire. So, Hellenization was present under both the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. It's just after Antiochus Epiphanes took over, he took it to a whole new level. Well, after the Jews regained their religious freedom after the Maccabean Revolt, they also wanted their political freedom back. And it took about another two decades, but in 142 BC, the Jews finally regained their political independence.
0: And this is hard for us to grasp, but when the Jews regained their independence, it was the first time in over 400 years. The first Babylonian deportation of the Jews to Babylon had taken place around 600 B.C. Even after the Jews returned to Palestine around 70 years later, they still weren't independent. They were just a vassal state of the Persian Empire, then part of the Greek Empire. That must have been an amazing period for the Jews to finally have their freedom after over 450 years of foreign
2: rule. Undoubtedly. But of course, even at that point in history, the Jews had been subject to Greek influence for over 150 years. So this process of Hellenization had been going on for a long time. Well, as with any large cultural movement, some of the Jews had actually welcomed the changes that the Greeks had brought with them. But, of course, many of the Jews did not. Well, even after the Jews under the Maccabeans regained their political independence, they still did not return to their traditional priestly line of the priests in charge of the temple. Instead, the Maccabees founded what's known as the Hasmonean Dynasty. Now, that was named for one of the Maccabees' ancestors, someone named Hashmon. And the Maccabees, the Hasmonean dynasty, continued their control of the country both politically and religiously. Now, this was fine with some of the Jews, but not fine with others. And one of the things that many of the Jews objected to was that the Hasmonean rulers continued to dominate the priesthood, even though the Hasmonean rulers, the Maccabees, were not from the priestly line of Aaron. Also, the Hasmoneans, in many ways, continued to adopt Greek ways of life.
0: And the Sadducees appeared to have been a group that supported them in this plan. The Sadducees were an aristocratic group that seemed to have prized political stability above everything else. I suppose we would think of them as being the establishment of their day.
2: Yes. Now, religiously, the Sadducees only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament, which are often referred to as the Pentateuch. The Sadducees only recognized the Pentateuch as being canonical. The Sadducees, of course, knew about the other books of the Old Testament, but they saw those books as having lesser authority. So this was one of the reasons that the Sadducees rejected the doctrine of the resurrection which Jesus confronted them about.
0: We heard that in our opening scripture today from Mark, chapter 12. There's a parallel account of the same confrontation in Matthew, chapter 22, verses 22 through 33. So it's fair to say that the Sadducees had embraced the process of Hellenization far more than some other groups within Israel at the time. Yes. Then where do the Pharisees fit in?
2: Well, the Pharisees seem to have arisen as one of the groups that opposed the loss of the traditional Jewish culture and laws. The Pharisees were not primarily a political group, but they seem to have begun to function as a cultural, religious, and political counterweight to the Sadducees and the Hellenizing intentions of the Hasmoneans. So the Pharisees did accept the entire body of Scripture that we call the Old Testament. So the Pharisees did accept the doctrine of resurrection and life after death.
0: And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He famously invoked this religious difference when he was arrested in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 23. This was a bit of clever lawyering on Paul's part, wasn't it?
2: Yes. Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin was around 60 A.D., So the Pharisees and the Sadducees were still the groups that comprised the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees did not agree with the resurrection. The Pharisees did agree with the resurrection. So when Paul saw that the groups were trying to put him on trial, one of the things that Paul did was to mention the doctrine of the resurrection. So he caused an argument to break out between the two different groups and that prevented them from being able to focus their attention on him as much. That was about 200 years later than the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So, as we mentioned, we're not exactly sure when the Sadducees and the Pharisees formed as identifiable groups, but we do know that they are mentioned by the historian Josephus in connection with a Hasmonean ruler named John Hyrcanus, and he ruled from about 134 B.C. to 104 B.C.
0: So, sometime between the latter part of the 2nd century BC and the opening of the New Testament period, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had become so well-established and prominent that together they became the ruling group within Israel. Both groups had longevity. They persisted for well over 150 years, and we know that both groups had influence and power in Jesus' day.
2: Yes. So, while we don't know the exact origin of either group, we do know that both groups have their roots in the intertestamental period, and so I think that that helps us see how the Greek control of Palestine was a significant factor in shaping the Israel in which Jesus appeared. What are you thinking about? Well, the Roman general Pompey had displaced the final portion of the Greek Empire when he occupied Jerusalem in 63 B.C.,
0: which put an end to the Jews' independence. So they were independent for less than 100 years?
2: Yes. So let's think about this for just a second. Between 300 BC and 142 BC, the Jews were subject to Greek rule by either the Ptolemies or the Seleucids. And even after the Jews became politically independent, there were still factions within Israel that had supported the increasing Hellenization of their culture. Well, the Greeks, as a conquering empire, actively sought not just to conquer their territories militarily, but they actively sought to transmit and spread their ideas and their culture. Now, of course, the Greeks were eventually replaced by the Romans, but the Romans did not make the same kind of corresponding effort to change the cultures, languages, or religious practices of the people that they conquered.
0: The Romans were a very practical people. They were interested in stability within their far-flung empire. They wanted control over economies, taxes, the military, and what we might term infrastructure. But the Romans didn't have any particular interest in the religions or worship practices of their subject provinces, provided those practices didn't disrupt the Roman governance or peace and stability of their empire. In fact, the Romans afforded the Jews a fair amount of self-rule, even during Jesus' day, didn't they? The Jews had their own ruling council comprised of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The High Council was permitted to make judgments about civil and criminal matters, although only the Romans could pronounce a death sentence. The Jews selected their very own high priest. They were permitted to regulate the activities of the temples and the synagogues. And even some of the high-ranking Jews became friends with very senior Romans, including members of Caesar's family.
2: Right. As you mentioned, the Romans were very practical, and this made the Romans very capable builders and administrators. So while it's painting with a very broad brush, you might say that the Romans were builders, while the Greeks had been thinkers. Alexander had taken an entire contingent of Greek scientists and philosophers along with his army. The Greeks not only sought knowledge in the territories that they conquered, but they actively sought to spread their knowledge and culture. So, even during Jesus' time, after the Roman Empire had displaced the Greek Empire, Greek was still the most common language that was used in international commerce and affairs. And of course, even today, the names of Greek philosophers are still household names in our society. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, as well as many other ancient Greek philosophers are still well known in our day and time.
0: So there are Greek philosophers that are well-known, but there are still some Roman public facilities in use in our day and time. Aqueducts and roads built by the Romans have survived, and some are still functioning after 2,000 years. The Romans were masters at construction, including pouring and curing concrete underwater to build very sophisticated ports and harbors. Naturally, the Roman military prowess is legendary because they were masters of the metallurgy and military design. So what you're saying is that the differences in these two empires was significant in God's preparation of the world for the arrival of Jesus.
2: Exactly. So we're going to talk more about this in a future episode of Anchored by Truth, but let's just say for the time being that the Romans made it safe for the very first evangelists to travel throughout the Roman Empire and spread the gospel. But the Greeks had made it possible for the evangelists to talk with the people wherever they went. Again, speaking broadly, the first evangelists traveled on Roman roads and were protected from bandits and robbers and vagabonds by Roman soldiers. But when they arrived at their destinations, them being able to converse with the people that they met was as a consequence of the Greeks.
0: But you are also saying that the impact of the Greek and Roman empires on the preparation for Jesus' arrival wasn't just limited to the world outside Palestine. There were also impacts within Palestine. This was especially true of the Greeks who had been present in Palestine in one form or another for 300 years. And part of that impact was reflected in the presence and differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees.
2: Yes. The Sadducees seemed to have followed the Hasmonean practice of embracing the Hellenization that had been brought to Israel. The Pharisees did not. In fact, the Pharisees seemed to have actively resisted attempts to change their culture. This meant that the Sanhedrin which was the Jews' ruling council at the time of Jesus, was split religiously and philosophically. Now, the one thing that all the people in the Sanhedrin did agree on was that they had a strong desire to maintain their own power and influence, which meant keeping their own money as well.
0: Well, just about anyone who has read the Gospels or listened to a sermon on Jesus' life has heard about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But what are you thinking about when you talk about their presence being important insofar as the arrival of Jesus in the world is concerned?
2: Well, as you said, just about anybody who has ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or heard a sermon preached about them, has heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And part of the reason that we've all heard about them is because it was often encounters between Jesus and a Sadducee or a Pharisee that provided us with some of the clearest statements that we have on major issues that pertain to salvation.
0: Such as?
2: Well, let's look at the encounter that we heard about in our opening scripture. This same encounter that we heard about in our opening scripture is described in both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. In this encounter, a group of the Sadducees was trying to trip up Jesus by asking him basically a trick question. And this trick question was for them a standard question that they used in their debates with the Pharisees about whether there would be a physical resurrection. Remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. So, the Sadducees pointed to the famous married to seven different brothers question.
0: Let's listen to the question from Matthew chapter 22, verse 25 through 28. The Sadducees said, quote, Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her,
2: Right. You know, the basis for this question was the Leverite requirement that was put out in the book of Levi in the Old Testament where a younger brother had to marry the widow of an older brother. And then the first son of the marriage between the younger brother and the widow would be reckoned by the Jews as the son of the older brother, and that was to prevent names and property rights from disappearing from Israel. So, at any rate, this question about the widow being married to seven brothers was a trick question.
0: Like the philosophy professor who asked the Christian student, if God is all-powerful, Can God make a rock so big
2: God can't lift it? Exactly like that. It was a trick question, but of course it couldn't trick Jesus. Jesus quickly pointed out to the Sadducees that even the part of the Old Testament that they did accept, the Pentateuch, stated clearly that there was life after death. Jesus was quoting from Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. While that encounter is described in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And God, when he was speaking at that encounter, mentioned the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those are names that are contained in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So Jesus was pointing out that even the part of the scriptures that the Sadducees acknowledged accepting, the doctrine of the resurrection was clearly demonstrated. Because Jesus pointed out that God had used the present tense when he was speaking with Moses, indicating clearly that at that time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive with God, even though all three of those men had died physically decades before the encounter between Moses and God.
0: The presence of the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Israel during Jesus' lifetime was actually helpful in Jesus getting out his message. The Sadducees and Pharisees were the leaders of society in their day. People listened to them just as they listened to various kinds of leaders and celebrities in our day people would follow what the Sadducees and the Pharisees said and did. And people would have been particularly interested if anyone confronted them. So when Jesus had a debate or exchange with one, the report would spread far widely and quickly than it would otherwise be. And of course, we need to know something about the intertestamental period to know why that was true. If we don't know anything about the intertestamental period, the Sadducees and Pharisees appear in the Bible just like Dorothy dropping in from Kansas.
2: Well, I kind of like that visual. Anyway, in our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to take a little more time to see how some of Jesus' exchanges with the Sadducees and the Pharisees produced some of the clearest and most important teaching that we have in the Bible. Just as we heard in the Scripture today, Jesus himself has affirmed that the resurrection is real, that there will be a physical resurrection after we die on this earth. And since all things were made for him and through him and by him, Well, I think that Jesus is probably the most trustworthy voice possible to know whether there is life after death.
0: Amen. It sounds like a great time for a prayer. Jesus' ministry while he was on earth was all about saving those who are lost spiritually. The need for doing that continues today. Let's listen to a prayer for the spiritually lost.
1: A Prayer for the Spiritually Lost Wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you, we cannot be moved or thrown down though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away and we are grieved to see all about us, people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in His name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen.
0: Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're, we're not famous, but our boss is.